Let me pray and then we'll get into our uh, topic for today. So Father, thank you so much uh, for this neighborhood. Lord, thank you that you've placed us right here. You've rooted us deeply into this neighborhood uh, that is over 100 years old. And Lord, thanks that, um, that we get to be part of that neighborhood today. And Father, I pray for that Tuesday at the end of the month. Um, Lord, I pray that it would be an exciting time, an amazing time for us to meet our neighbors and to love them. And Lord, I pray as we look at this passage uh, that you give us insight to it as well. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So what we've been looking at over these past few weeks is the idea of a well-worn path that leads to spiritual maturity. The, the idea that being that spiritual maturity actually comes from what Eugene Peterson, uh, quoting Frederick Nietzsche, called the long obedience in the same direction. Uh, and here's the idea, that spiritual maturity never comes overnight. It's not something, you know, we don't find spiritual maturity through the novel, through something new. We find it through longevity. Uh, we find it over time. Spiritual maturity is achieved day by day by day by day, week by week by week by week, month by month, year by year, decade by decade, doing the same things that Christians have done for centuries over and over and over and over again. And actually what we're talking about really is a liturgy. A liturgy, simply put, is an order to that worship, an order to what you might do day by day, week by week, month by month, year by year. Uh, it's an order to how we relate to God, a way of making God, actually making him the most central thing in our lives. And here at Christ Church, we talk about that order, that liturgy, um, using four words, up, down, up, and out. Uh, that, that sort of orders how we relate to God. Um, and one of the images that sort of shaped how we talk about our liturgy here at Christ Church is, it's actually a very old sermon uh, preached by Charles Spurgeon in London Tabernacle near the end of the 19th century. Uh, and in this sermon, he tells the story of a king who was defeated and captured. And here's how Spurgeon tells the story. Uh, Spurgeon says, The story goes that a certain king, being taken prisoner, was bound in chains and dragged along at the chariot wheels of his conqueror. As he went along, he kept looking at the wheel and shedding tears, and then looking at the wheel again, and lifting up his eyes and smiling. The conqueror turned and said, why are you looking at this wheel? And the conquered king said, I was just thinking, such is the lot of man. Just now I was here at the top of the wheel, and now I am there at the bottom. But soon I may be up there at the top of the wheel, and you may be the one grinding in the dust. And then commenting on this little story, Spurgeon said, you know, sometimes one part of the wheel is at the top, and then it's at the bottom. And sometimes this part at the bottom is exalted, but soon it then sinks down again into the dust. And then again it's lifted up into the air, and then again by a single revolution of the wheel it's brought down again to the earth. Spurgeon says, so it is with our life. Now I'm going to apply this image of Spurgeon's in a way that, that he didn't, but I think he would agree with what I'm about to say. And I actually think that this idea of a wheel is a perfect illustration of both how a person becomes a Christian, but also how a person continually grows as a Christian. In other words, how a person first is transformed by Christ is a revolution of the wheel. And then how a person is continually transformed by Christ is that revolution over and over and over and over again. And ultimately, that is how we get to spiritual maturity. And so here's the image I want you to take away from that. Think about it this way. If a wheel is moving forward, right, if it's, if it's rotating forward, 
every part of the wheel eventually touches the dirt. Every part of the wheel touches the pavement. And what we're talking about today is the part in our liturgy where the wheel touches the dirt. And that's confession. Um, We've been representing our liturgy with a drawing that I've done. Can we put that drawing up? Yep, that's the one. Uh, We've been representing our liturgy with this drawing, uh, which is kind of like a wheel, right? And so in it, you can see the forward movement. You see those arrows going. And as as you move around that wheel, then it pushes you forward. And so there's this forward movement of up, down, up, and out. We look up to worship. That's the throne that's on there. Uh, Sorry, it's a horrible drawing of a throne, but that's a throne. We're looking up to worship him. But then that causes us then to look down in confession. We're then raised up by the good news of the gospel, and we're sent, propelled forward, sent out. And so the part of the wheel, the part of our liturgy we're focusing on today is that downward arrow in that drawing, which is confession. And whether you're a Christian or not, my guess is you might actually struggle with this idea of confession. Because to confess actually implies that you're admitting you've done something wrong. And the word that Christians use to describe the wrong things that we've done, you've already heard it several times this morning, is the word sin. And to be perfectly honest, it's not a word that we feel very comfortable with. In fact, if you're not a Christian, it might just be the reason you were even afraid to come today. And yet here we are talking about it, confirming all your worst fears. But stick with me, because freedom from sin, this removal of guilt, this deep joy, this lasting joy that comes from it, is actually what the Christian faith is all about. Uh, And so what does confession, what does the, the bottom part of the wheel, what does that look like? Well, we'll look at that in three parts today. So our three parts are part one, seeing God. Part two, seeing ourselves, and part three, seeing Jesus. So seeing God, seeing ourselves, and seeing Jesus. And let's look at these three. And the way we're going to do that uh, is we're going to look at a number of passages. And so I'll put those, uh, or Lance will put those on the screen for us. But keep Psalm 32 open because we're going to get to that in the middle. Uh, But part one, seeing God. Now, if you were here several weeks ago when we started the series, we began by looking at Isaiah's encounter with God in Isaiah chapter 6, where he's invited into the throne room of heaven. And after seeing God and all of his glory, all of his holiness, that causes Isaiah to then say something surprising. He says, woe to me. Not woe is me, but woe to me. In other words, what Isaiah does is first he looks up, he sees God, he has an encounter with God in his glory. And God in that passage is described as high and exalted, as seated on a throne. And there are these incredible beings surrounding him and they're saying, holy, holy, holy. In other words, they are proclaiming that God is the most holy, just infinitely holy and righteous and pure and glorious. And it's only after encountering God's holiness that he's able then to see himself rightly. And that's why he says, woe to me, which is him calling judgment down upon himself. Why? He says, for I'm a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips. That happens in Isaiah. But it happens again in Ezekiel chapters 1 and 2. In Ezekiel chapter 1, he gives this very long description of his encounter with God. We're not going to read the whole thing. It's a really long description of it. But at the very end of it, he summarizes it uh, in Ezekiel chapter 1, verse 28. We can put that one on the screen for us. He says, like the appearance of a rainbow in the clouds on a rainy day, so was the radiance around him. This was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. Right? Here he is looking up. But then notice this, when I saw it, I fell face down, and I heard the voice of one speaking. And so the entry point to confession is first to see, it's to encounter the glory, the holiness of God. 
using the language of our liturgy, the entry point to confession is to first look up. Because look what happens after he encounters the glory of God, the holiness of God. Look what it says. He says, when I saw it, I fell face down. Down. That's why we say down. In other words, humbling himself. Knowing that before a glorious, three times holy God, he cannot stand. There's another example of this, Job 42, and this is Job, he's speaking to God. We can put this on the screen as well. Job 42, verse 5, he says, My ears had heard of you. My ears had heard of you, God. But now my eyes have seen you. In other words, he's looked up. Verse 6, therefore I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. Now, do you see this movement of the wheel, this looking up, seeing God? And that then causes him to look down. And so what we can learn from this is that the right response to having an encounter with the holiness, with the glory of God, is always to confess, it's always to repent. Now, why is that? Well, some of you know that, um, and you've seen already by the drawing I've put up, that I, I like to do drawings. Uh, so here's another one for you. Um, so it's like taking my drawing of a cathedral and putting it up next to Monet, one of Monet's many paintings of the cathedral in Rouen, France. And just in case you're, just to be clear, mine's the one on, on the left. And when you, when you look at these side by side, when you compare them, when you look deeply at both of them, you begin immediately to see a flaw or two in Monet's painting. Here's the point. When confronted with glory, you can't help but see your own flaws. Monet's painting is glorious. It's phenomenal. And so there's something that happens when you are confronted with the glory and the holiness of God. That your own sinfulness becomes frightfully apparent because you are looking at the Holy One. The one in whom there is no wickedness. The one who is infinitely perfect in all of his being. And when you are confronted with that, you cannot help but fall flat on your face in the realization of your own sinfulness. This is what happened to Isaiah when he says, woe to me. This is what happens to Ezekiel when he sees the radiance of the glory and it says he fell face down. This is Job saying, my eyes have seen you, therefore I despise myself and I repent in the dust and the ashes. I mean, just think about it in your own life. This is why when you see somebody's perfectly curated images on Instagram, you feel a sense of shame. Right? You see this person or this uh, family or these children, like they're presenting themselves with an element of glory. Right? The perfect experience, the perfect smiles, the perfect clothes, the perfect hair, the perfect background, the perfect cup of coffee standing and posing in the most desirable place. It has a sense of glory to it as you, as you look at it. And then the irony is, as you're looking at these photos, you're in your pajamas in your cluttered kitchen. And so seeing that glory leads you to shame. Now, in a sense, that's bad. Because you shouldn't feel shame when looking at Instagram. Partly because what's the glory that's being presented there isn't a real glory. 
But in another sense, this idea of glory leading to shame is good. Because seeing God's glory, encountering him, encountering him as Ezekiel did, the radiance around him, the glory of God, that that should lead us to a sense of shame. That is what helps us to see ourselves rightly, as we truly are. That we're in need of forgiveness, in need of having our guilt removed. And that then leads us to part two, seeing ourselves. And so if you're having that experience, then what is it that we see when we see ourselves rightly? Well, we see, just like in my drawing, we see our flaws, our brokenness, our regrets, our sin. And so what do we do in response? Now, for the most part, what we'd say is we'll just get better at painting, right? Become a better painter. But that's actually not the Bible's response. The Bible's response is utterly different than that. The Bible's answer to that, to seeing yourself rightly, is actually to seek forgiveness through confessing our sins to God. And so let's take a look and see how the Bible leads us to seek forgiveness through confession. In Psalm 32, which is what we had read earlier, uh, Psalm 32 is, what are, uh, is one of what are called the penitential psalms. In other words, psalms where the writer is penitent. He's confessing his sin. There are seven of them in the book of Psalms. But we're just going to look at the beginning of Psalm 32, partly because right off the bat, it gives us a good definition of what sin is. So look at that again, Psalm 32, verse 1. Blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Now, verse 1 actually uses two Hebrew words that can both be translated sin or transgression. Uh, But it's two different words there. And so the word there in verse 1 for transgression, here's what that means. It actually means rebellious self-assertion. And so what is sin according to this psalm? Sin is rebellious self-assertion. In other words, sin is what we talked about a couple weeks ago. Man curved in on himself. And so one way of defining sin is self-assertion. It's self-centeredness. But then the second way, uh, also in verse 1, you see that word sin there. And that is a word that literally means to go off the path. And so picture it like this. The idea here is of a path. And to follow on that path, to stay on that path, not straying to the right or to the left, to, that is to avoid sin. But if you go off the path, veer to the right, veer to the left, that is sin. And so sin is, is veering off the path. Righteousness is staying on it. Holiness and goodness is staying on the path. But think about it. Straying from the path is just another way of talking about self-assertion, isn't it? Self-centeredness. Because what is it to go off the path, right? God has laid out a path for us. He said, this is righteousness. This is the way to live. And what are we doing when we turn off the path to the right or to the left? We're saying, I'll go my own way. I don't need God's path. I don't need God's morality. I don't need God's righteousness. I don't need his wisdom. I have my own path. I am my own moral center. I'll make my own righteousness. I'll follow my own heart rather than God's wisdom. And this is why it's so difficult to live out God's word today in this day and age. Because in our culture today, here's what is praised most. What's praised most is veering off the path. Straying from the path. That's what is praised. That's what's lifted up in our culture. Right? Be autonomous. Be an individual. You do you. Who is God to tell you what to do and how to live? 
Right? That's what's lifted up in praise in our culture, a person who can do that. Now, the problem is none of us actually lives that way. That actually that way of living, a law unto ourselves, total self-autonomy, is not actually how we live. And how do I know that? Well, think about this. Has somebody offended you recently? Somebody made you angry? Somebody cut you off on the freeway? Somebody mocked you? Somebody stolen something from you? You know, if everyone is truly autonomous, truly a law unto themselves, then there can be no right and wrong, no sin. And so because of that, a person, the person, let's say the person who cut you off on the freeway, they can say, you know, I'm more important than you. So it's okay. I'm a law unto myself, and I'm more important than you in my world. Or I have a nicer car than you, or a bigger car, or a faster car. Therefore, I get to go first. That's my truth. And they might be saying that, but the problem is you were still offended, weren't you? You were still hurt. You were still wronged. In other words, that person actually did go against right and wrong. They actually did commit a sin. And so the the very essence of sin, what we're seeing in Psalm 32, is self-assertion. Self-assertion. Now, let's read on Psalm 32, because the psalmist actually describes the need for confession by actually talking about the weight of his sin. Look at verse 3. It says, When I kept silent, my bones wasted away. Through my groaning all day long, for day and night your hand was heavy on me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. And so he talks about this sin that he has like it's a weight. And I love that image of his strength being sapped as in the heat of summer. You know, I visited Arizona in August. I have been there when it's 120 some degrees. And you walk outside and it literally feels like a weight is pressing you into the pavement. That's the description here. That's how his sin, he says his sin Feels. It's like carrying the weight of heat on a 120 degree day. And before that, in verse 3, he says his sin actually causes him to waste away. And this is why, verses 1 and 2, blessed is the one who's been forgiven. Now, what that's saying is, none of us can actually bear the weight of our sins. This is why we need to confess. Because look at the next verse, verse 5 confession results in forgiveness. It says, then I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the guilt of my sin. So why is it that we need to confess? Why do we need to do that? Because only confession brings about forgiveness. Only confession lifts that weight from us. Now, let me try and illustrate this from a modern secular novelist. And some of you will have heard me use this uh, story before, but it's profoundly true to life, and I think it's worth looking at again. Uh, a couple of years ago, I read a book called The Midnight Library by Matt Haig. And the thing that caused me to buy the book was a subtitle. It says, With Infinite Choices, What is the Best Way to Live? And the story goes something like this. There's a young woman and she, whose life hasn't gone as she would, would have hoped, and she had the talent and hopes of becoming an Olympic swimmer, and she also had the talent and opportunity to be in a famous rock band. Yet as you pick up the story, she is depressed, and in her mind she's underachieving because she's not done any of those things. And so at uh, the beginning of the story, she takes her own life. And mysteriously, she wakes up in a place called the Midnight Library, where the clock is always at midnight. And in the library, she meets a librarian who describes where she is. And she says, uh, between life and death, there is a library. And within that library, the shelves go on forever. 
Every book provides a chance to try another life you could have lived, to see how things would be different if you had uh, made other choices. Would you have done anything different if you had the chance to undo your regrets? And the librarian explains to her, again, this is fictional. I don't think there is actually a Midnight Library, just in case you're wondering. The librarian explains to her that she can pick any alternate life and live that life. She can just jump in and live that life. This way, she can undo any regretful choices that she's made in life, effectively becoming a new person. And so she picks all sorts of different lives to live, one where she is the Olympic swimmer, one where she is in a rock band, all kinds of different lives. But interestingly, she never seems to be fully satisfied with any of these lives that she picks, and so she keeps returning to the library and picking a new one. And near the start of the book, before any of these Uh, Before she jumps into any of these lives, the librarian of this fictional library hands the main character a book called The Book of Regrets. And it's a book that records all the thoughts and the words and the deeds and decisions that she's made in her life that she regrets. And then listen to her describe the feeling she has holding and reading this book. She says, the power of all the regrets simultaneously emanating from this book was becoming agony. The weight of guilt and remorse and sorrow too strong. She leaned back on her elbows, dropped the heavy book, and squeezed her eyes shut. She could hardly breathe as if invisible hands were around her neck. Make it stop! Close it now, instructed the librarian. Close the book. Not just your eyes, close it. You have to do it yourself. So Nora, feeling like she was about to pass out, sat back up and placed her hand under the front cover. It felt even heavier now, but she managed to close the book and gasped in relief. Now what that is describing so powerfully is the weight that each and every single one of us would feel if handed a book of our own regrets, our own book of sins. The power of all our regrets simultaneously emanating from the book becoming agony. The weight of guilt and remorse and sorrow for our sin pressing us into the ground. And so we would beg for it to stop just like our psalmist did. I mean, this must have been the weight, the agony that Isaiah felt, that Ezekiel felt, that Job felt when encountering God's glory. That glory causing them to see themselves rightly. To see them as burdened by a weight of sin that we cannot bear. And what Matt Haig seems to be saying with this fictional book is that everyone has a book of regrets. Everyone has a weight, an agonizing weight of sin that we have to find a way to deal with. And the Bible's answer to that weight is Psalm 32, verse 5. Then I acknowledged my sin to you, and you did not cover up my iniquity, and did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And you forgave the guilt of my sin. And so what we've been seeing is that glory brings about shame. But confession brings about forgiveness. This is why confession is an essential part of our liturgy. That only confession brings about this forgiveness. And so what is the answer for us? How do we experience this crushing weight of our guilt and shame Uh, How do we experience that removed? It's through confession. Weekly, daily, hourly. Confessing over and over and over and over again. And I have to admit that at first blush, that sounds like if we're confessing all the time, we're not really making any spiritual progress. 
We're not actually moving towards spiritual maturity. But actually, it's the opposite. Because remember our wheel. The way that a wheel makes progress on the road is by revolution after revolution after revolution, always spinning, always turning. And when a person confesses their sins to God, God never leaves them on the ground, crushed down into the ground, into the pavement. Instead, what does he do? He lifts them up. And we'll talk more in depth about that part of this wheel next week. But for now, all Christian confession not only includes seeing God, but it includes seeing ourselves rightly. And then ultimately, it includes seeing Jesus. And that's part three, seeing Jesus. Now, in that book, The Midnight Library, which I read from a minute ago, did you notice what the librarian said that Nora, the main character, noticed what she said she had to do to stop the weight of her regrets from crushing her? Do you remember what she said? Nora says, make it stop. And the librarian says, close it now, close the book. Not just your eyes, close it. And then the last thing she says, you have to do it yourself. You have to do it yourself. You overcome the burden of your sin yourself. But right here, this is why Christianity is different from all other worldviews, from all other religions. Because when it comes to the weight of our sin, what God says in the person of Jesus Christ is, I'll take the weight of your sin on me. John 3, 16 and 17, most famous verses in the Bible. We put this on the screen. It says, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Verse 17, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. In other words, what that's saying is Jesus Christ came into the world to save us, to close the book, to bear the weight of the burden of our sin. And so how do we know that our sins are forgiven when we confess them to God? It's by seeing Jesus, by seeing what he did, seeing just what it is that Jesus Christ did when he came. And when he came, he came as our substitute. Colossians chapter 2, verse 13 says, When you were dead in your sins, in the uncircumcision of your flesh. In other words, when all the weight is bearing down on you. It says, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us, he has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. And what these verses are saying is that all the burden that you carry around for your sin, when you confess that to Jesus Christ, he takes the burden on himself. So much so that when Jesus Christ was nailed to the cross, the Bible says that he became the sin offering. In other words, when he is nailed, your sin is nailed. When he was nailed to the cross, he was bearing as a sin offering the punishment for our sins. And at the same time, his righteousness from never having sinned was given to you. And so not only does Jesus Christ through the cross, not only does he close our book of regrets, but he throws it away. Removing it forever. In the book of 1 John, the Apostle John says in chapter 1, verse 7, he says that the blood of Jesus purifies us from all sin. And then in verse 8, it says this. You can put this on the screen. It says, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. What he's saying is all of us have this burden. All of us have sin. 
And if we claim to be without it, then we're deceiving, we're just lying to ourselves. Verse 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Now we say almost every week in our liturgy words like this, that confession isn't a time to beat ourselves up, but to be honest about ourselves and to vocalize before the Lord and one another where we are broken and perhaps how we have wronged others so that we can receive forgiveness and grace freely offered by Jesus. And so do you want to be forgiven? Do you want the weight of that sin lifted? Your, your book of regrets not only closed but thrown away. Well, this is why we confess. This is why we confess. And this is why it's progress that we do this over and over and over and over again. That rather than claim to be without sin or claim to have a righteousness of our own, instead, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us and purify us. The weight removed, the book closed and thrown away. This is why confession is so central to our liturgy. But the more that we do this, the more and more mature we become. And so if you want that kind of Forgiveness today, then let's, let's actually, let's say another confession together. There's a confession that Christians have used for a couple hundred years um, that goes like this. There's two slides to this, so you'll have to follow me with it. I can't quite see it. So um, let's say this together. Most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed by what we have done and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We are truly sorry and we humbly repent. For the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us and forgive us, that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your name. Amen. Now here's what God's word tells us, that if a person believes in their heart and confesses with their mouth that Jesus is Lord, they will be saved. But confession is also the whole of the life of a Christian. And so for those of you who are already trusting in Christ, we say confessions like this week by week by week. Because that's how the wheel turns. That's how we have progression in the faith. The wheel keeps turning. The wheel keeps moving forward. I mean, we can be assured of our forgiveness. And again, in our liturgy, we often say words like this, that for those who by faith bring their brokenness where they've wronged others in confession to Christ, even if you're bringing these to Christ for the first time, hear these words of assurance. And so to those who confess, hear these words of assurance of God's love in 1 John chapter 3, verse 1, says, see what great love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God and that is what we are. And so that's looking down. Confession. And so our liturgy works like this wheel. We can put the wheel back up once more. It works like this wheel of looking up to worship Christ and his glory, that causing us to see ourselves rightly and so we look down in confession. Then we're raised up through the good news of the gospel and sent out. But the life of a Christian is never just one revolution of the wheel. It's the well-worn path of the long obedience in the same direction of that wheel, turning and turning and turning and turning. 
And so, therefore, the life of a Christian growing in spiritual maturity looks like this next slide. It's the wheel over and over and over again. In other words, spiritual progress, spiritual maturity comes as we confess this uh, in this way over and over and over again. That is the long obedience in the same direction. That is the well-worn path. And the longer we stay on that path, the more the wheel turns, the more spiritually mature we become. Now that's true for, the, for us as individuals, but also as a church. What we are seeking is to walk this well-worn path of the long obedience in the same direction together. And so we're asking the question through the series, what happens if a group of people in the center of one of the most self-centered and fast-moving cities on earth, what if a group of people in the middle of that city slowed down and became Christ-centered by walking this well-worn path of this long obedience in the same direction? What would that look like in your own life? What would that look like in your home, with your family, with your friends, with your coworkers? What would that do to our city? I don't know yet what it will do, but I'd love for us to find out together as we walk this well-worn path together. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for this well-worn path that Christians have been walking for centuries. And Lord, I pray for each and every one of us that, um, that we would walk this day by day by day, week by week by week, month by month, year by year, decade by decade, and that that ultimately would result in spiritual maturity. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.